Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Inflammatory Content, the podcast all about immunology. I'm your host, Kellen Cavanero. In this episode of the podcast, we return to everyone's favorite podcast format, the interview. And I am stoked about this one. And that is because our guest today is none other than my thesis advisor, Dr. Richard Gallo. For his bio, I'm going to quote his Wikipedia page. Quote, Richard L. Gallo, MD, PhD, is a distinguished professor and founding chairman of dermatology at the University of California, San Diego, and chief of dermatology at the VA San Diego Healthcare System. His research accomplishments as a physician scientist include discovery of antimicrobial peptides in mammalian skin, establishing new links between innate immunity and skin diseases such as atopic dermatitis and rosacea, and defining functions of the skin microbiome and host immune defense. End quote. Rich is a brilliant scientist, an amazing mentor, and an all-around great guy. In this interview, we talk about two of the lab's recent publications related to a host defense process called reactive adipogenesis, wherein immune fibroblastic cells, or IFCs, differentiate into fat cells and produce the endogenous antibiotic cathelicidin. You can find references to these articles in the show notes. Rich and I also discuss his background, good advice for trainees, bad advice for trainees, and much more. I apologize in advance for the relatively low quality audio of this interview. We had a scheduling snafu and were forced to forego the fancy mics. Nevertheless, this is an interview you don't want to miss. So without further delay, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Richard Gallo. I think a very interesting place to start is the question, what is reactive adipogenesis? Ah, well, we started using the term to recognize that cells that become adipocytes, that process of adipogenesis, most people think about it as, you, you know, you eat too much and that, you know, initiates a differentiation process that causes fat to build up. But what we found in our lab a few years back was that infections like Staph aureus, the body would react with the initiation of this programmed adipogenesis in the dermal fibroblasts. So how do you distinguish adipogenesis, just making fat from a process where you really have host defense, that part of the host defense program is the maybe the development of a transient expansion of fat? Um, and we came up with the, the term reactive adipogenesis to describe that. So you think this is a, a very important host defense process that you first discovered in relation to a cutaneous staph aureus infection. More recently, the lab has published two big papers, and the first one is related to acne. Could you tell us how reactive adipogenesis plays a role in acne? Yeah, but I think I should... I should actually recognize the fact that the process of sort of micro fat formation wasn't unknown at all. Yeah, we discovered that it happened as a host defense response to 
deep staph aureus infection, but it had been previously described when the skin is cut and during wounding, there's a little bit of adipogenesis. And every time a hair follicle cycles, there's a little bit of adipogenesis right around the hair follicle. The investigators who had done that work hypothesized that under those conditions, the, the um, fat was contributing or the, the cells, the fibroblasts becoming fat were contributing by making morphogens that would change the growth. That may still be true. So getting to your question about acne, what the lab observed was that in hair follicles that get infected, that's an acne lesion, this process of fat formation started to a very big extent around that, that pimple. So reactive adipogenesis, surprisingly, is, is occurring in your skin every time you get a pimple. But the real kind of cool part about it for, for us is that when those cells start turning into fat, um, they start making a lot of natural antibiotics, in particular, the antimicrobial peptide gene called cathelcidin. And that's very important, it turns out, for limiting the infection in an acne pimple. And it's part of the whole host immune program in that system, too. Could you explain some of the exciting technology that the lab used in this report? When you, when you start to look at small scale interactions, like a bacteria trying to get into an organ and start an infection, before that big lesion happens, and in the case of acne, before that big visible pimple happens, there are small interactions between you know, very specific cells in a very complex and mixed cellular community. About 10 or 15 years ago, the technology started becoming available to uh, do something called single cell RNA sequencing, where rather than just looking at an RNA transcriptomic response in a big hunk of tissue or in a dish of cells, you could sort out the individual cells and, and sequence the, uh, at least some of the transcripts in each of those cells. So we applied that to both mouse uh, acne-like lesions and human skin. And by using that technique, we could see at a single cell level that the fibroblasts surrounding those hair follicles were becoming adipocytes and producing this uh, antimicrobial host response. Something else that was also done in the paper related to humans, in addition to sequencing of the, of the biopsies from patients with acne and characterizing the cathelicidin expression and the reactive adipogenesis, was investigating the effect of retinoids on, right. on reactive adipogenesis. So what, what did you find there? Well, you know, many people have heard about Accutane. It's a, it's a very good treatment for very severe acne. And there's also a common drug called Retin-A, retinoic acid as a cream. It's also present in a lot of, you know, other medicines as an addition. For a long time, people, had observed that these vitamin A derivatives, retinoids, were good at treating acne. And the observation is, if you take retinoids, it tends to dry out the skin, kind of decreases lipid. Um, and everybody just assumed that um, that drying out of the skin is why the acne got better. And you know, maybe that, that seems like a, it, it could be part of the story still, it's true, but, uh, what we observed in this paper 
was that we could make a mouse have an acne-like lesion and then treat it with a retinoid and the acne lesions got much smaller. It, it definitely helped. But if the mouse didn't have the antimicrobial peptide gene, if it was a knockout for cathelicidin, the mouse dried up just as much with the retinoic acid, it you know, inhibited lipid synthesis, but now it could no longer improve the pimple. So that was a big surprise. I would, you know, you went wahoo in the lab when you see something like that, because it completely changes the way you're thinking about something. You know, before this was a medicine that we used because we thought it was important to dry them out. And now we see that the medicine is affecting the body's antimicrobial production. And if you can't do that, the medicine doesn't work. So it, it causes us to rethink why retinoids are important for treating acne and why they work. It also puts us in a completely new direction about, you know, maybe we could treat acne in a different way by affecting the fibroblasts that are making these antimicrobials and by affecting reactive adipogenesis and without all the other toxicities associated with retinoids. There's definitely a large need for a medication like that, right? Acne affects how many millions of people? At least 30 million people in the U.S. alone. There's probably no one that could say they never had a pimple. Now, now that, that level of acne is not something that requires big, strong systemic medications, but you know, millions of people have had debilitating, scarring acne. It's one of the biggest psychosocial impacts of, uh, of a disease because it's so common and in its severe form, it can cause loss of school, loss of work. Uh, depression is highly associated with it. So it's, it's, it's not a mild disease on a sociological basis. And it's certainly not a mild disease when it happens to you at a time you don't want it to happen. Um, so the, uh, the need for improved drugs is there. The best drug we had was Accutane or isotretinoin, but isotretinoin causes birth defects. It has a lot of very serious systemic side effects. So it can't be handed out without very, very careful supervision. And even under those conditions, sometimes things go wrong. So it'd be great to have a better medicine that was safer and just as effective. Shifting gears a little bit, but along similar lines, I'd like to now discuss the other paper that was recently published from our lab related to reactive adipogenesis. And that involves the skin-gut connection. So could you tell us from a clinical perspective, what we know about the skin-gut connection? We know that there are associations, and for, for centuries, really, people have noticed that people with skin diseases can more frequently have gastrointestinal diseases, and which way that caused an effect when was never really clear. A good example is uh, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. These are bad inflammatory bowel diseases. And sometimes people with those inflammatory bowel diseases develop really terrible non-healing wounds on their skin. We've also come to see that certain very common uh, skin diseases when looked at carefully, things like psoriasis and atopic dermatitis, people who have those rashes on the skin more frequently have inflammatory bowel diseases. You know, a lot of uh, industry has been around the use of dietary supplements and 
oral probiotics to change the gut bacteria, gut health, with the idea that that can improve some skin diseases. And, and you'll, you'll hear of like, you know, take this pill and it's better for acne because it's affecting the gut. So all of those observations have led to discussions of these axes that connect tissues. And, and in particular, what we're talking about here is the skin gut axis, but also there's been the gut brain axis. And it's a very gut centric universe, this, this tissue to tissue interaction. Also there's food allergies, um, you know, intestinal reactions there. And then Consequently, other diseases like uh, asthma, so lung gut, and then skin lung gut. And people have seen these diseases clinically happening for a long time. An aim in the lab was to then figure out if there is a mechanistic association, and if so, the directionality? Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of, but mostly to be disruptors. You know, as a, as a dermatology lab, we got a little sick and tired of thinking that the gut's controlling the skin. And there really was no clinical evidence to prove that it couldn't be the other way around, that the skin community of microbes or the skin health couldn't be controlling the gut. Kind of the first thing was just, let's design an experiment as a disruptor of dogma and do something only to the skin and see if the gut responds. And that's what this paper started as. What something did you do to the skin? Okay, well, we did a couple of things. So the simple thing is to cut the skin, cause inflammation in the skin. Another thing that we did as a consequence of that, because of other, some other background work, is we used a transgenic mouse that specifically uh, expressed an enzyme called a hyaluronidase just in the basal layer of the epidermis, the surface of the skin. We did that because we had learned that uh, two things. One, that when you injure the skin, there is an increase in this hyaluronidase. So it's part of that host immune response. And the other thing we had learned is that reactive adipogenesis and the process of adipocyte development depends on the glycan that hyaluronidase is targeting hyaluronin. So, you know, we really wondered whether or not the expression of hyaluronidase in the skin or a wound in the skin could then be translated by sending hyaluronidase throughout the body to something happening in the gut. And uh, indeed, that's what happened. What was the, if there was, an exciting moment for this project? You know, excitement sometimes comes after disappointment. So the first thing we did, you know, was just do those interventions and look at the intestine. And at a very gross level, we really didn't notice anything different. Um, but we've learned that many things in immunology, to really see the consequences of the effect, you need to challenge the immune system. So uh, the big aha, holy cow moment came when Tatsuya, the uh, project scientist in my lab, took those mice and had them drink dextran sodium sulfate, DSS. And that causes normal mice to have inflammation in the colon, they lose some weight, they don't feel very well from it. It's a, it's a model of that human disease, IBD. And then they typically recover. Uh, it's, it's a mild case of transient IBD. When Tatsuya did that in those mice that had the hyaluronase, 
expression in their skin. Half of them died. It's just tremendous phenotype where something that when you look at the mouse with hyaluronic, it looks perfectly normal. There's no inflammation in the skin. They're running around happy little mice. But if you challenge their colon, that, that, that thing that's going on differently in the skin causes half of the mice to die. And the ones that survive, they have much more severe disease. And interestingly, much more reactive adipogenesis in the colon. I want to ask what's next for this project. And you can share if you're comfortable sharing. There's something going on in those, those mice after the hyaluronin digestion in the absence of DSS, but nothing you could see by eye. Do you want to share what you're thinking is going on there? What, what we're learning in, in sometimes little steps, sometimes big steps like the discoveries you've made in, the, in, the, in your PhD thesis so far is taking it back a step from that adipogenesis event and realizing that the cells that become fat are fibroblasts. To me, the big next thing in, in, in the colon system, in the acne system, and I think um, it, just a paper in, in eczema, maybe it'll be true in pulmonary diseases as well, and maybe other diseases, is that many of the fibroblasts, kind of that primordial stem cell state for, for adipocyte and many other cells are very active, potent immune cells. The term that we've all come to refer to them as is uh, IFCs or immune fibroblastic cells. This kind of segues nicely into my, my next question, which is, what do you believe is the biggest misconception in the field? Which field? <laughs> Let's say innate immunology. I think that the, 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 the initial biggest misconception, and when I lecture on, on this subject, um, would try to cor uh, correct it, is that, for, that somehow innate immunity, which is used to re re you know, reflect non-learned post-defense processes, you know, genetically encoded things that don't require the sort of learned differentiation response of lymphocytes is a separate immune system from the adaptive immune system where antigen exposure is required to cause certain clonal populations of cells to, to expand. So I think that still in innate immunity, perhaps the biggest misconception is that somehow it's them and then there's the other cells which are not innate immune cells. And what, what this process of understanding about IFCs and reactive adipogenesis is teaching us, as we've seen in many other systems, is that innate and adaptive immune cells would class our, 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 our team, they're communicating to each other. The innate immune system is being affected by products of the adaptive immune system of T cells and vice versa. The innate immune effector molecules like what we've studied so much cathelicidin, very potent chemotractin, you know, affects leukocyte migration and is influencing uh, adaptive immune processes. So innate immunity and adaptive immunity are ways to think about different types of events, but they're not separate systems. I know you love to talk about science. You, you love to talk about science probably more than anyone I've ever met. And that's why that's what I love about working with you. But I do want to talk about you a little bit. 
So I was looking at your Wikipedia page earlier and it's very decorated with accomplishments. And I think it's very easy for trainees, which this podcast is designed for. It's very easy for trainees to look at that and look at you and and think that you're hitting home runs out of the park all the time. And I want to humanize you a little bit and show maybe showcase a failure of yours that maybe is your favorite. So do you have a favorite failure? Maybe one that taught you an important lesson. I guess there's there's been lots of failures. I think none of them could be perceived as something that was pleasant to go through. You know, I, I, I was not fortunate early in my life to have uh, many educational opportunities. My, my, the, the high school I went to, very few people went to, went to college. And um, you know, I was lucky enough to, to get into a college and have a mentor early on that, that took care of me and, and had some, uh, some money there to su- support me and you know, scholarships and so forth. But unfortunately, although there's lots of setbacks, maybe my kind of favorite failure is a, is, is a scientific one. I guess this is getting back to what you say about me loving to speak about science. But my, my first college mentor, Dr. Godfrey Getz, had me, oh, he, he had some very precious fibroblasts of all things that he had isolated from patients with familial hypercholesterolemia in South Africa, he was South African. His brilliant idea was to look at those fibroblasts and to make monoclonal antibodies in a subtractive library to look at what's different on the surface of people with familial hypocholesterolemia versus people without it, to try to find out maybe there's something there like a receptor for lipoproteins or something like that. So I thought, wow, this sounds random to me, but I'll give it a try. I didn't understand their with the, the uh, consequences of it. And I tried to grow the cells and, and they were going okay. And, and I think it was a Sunday night or something. I went into the, uh, into the tissue culture room and all these precious cells were dead. The cultures died and it was like awful. There were some backup cells, but it was a high risk project. Nobody else in his lab really was interested in it. All my cells had died. And I wrote a you know, little college thesis on something else. And a couple of years later, Brown and Goldstein in Texas had a somewhat similar approach to which they won the Nobel Prize for, for isolating the LDL receptor. So it, it was like, wow, cool. I was working on an important project, which I didn't even know I was working on an important project then. And, and the other thing was it kind of taught me the lesson that, you know, setbacks are to be expected and, you know, stick to it when you got a good idea. How did your mentor handle that mistake? Uh, you know, I, I wish I could, um, I could uh, mimic his South African ac- uh, accent, but it was a very loud curse word, as I remember. <laughs> Did he reprimand you at all, or kind no, of? Just... No, no, of course not. My PhD mentor is the same way. I think a lot of us in science, the, and my postdoc mentor, we, we're kind of used to rejection and failure. <laughs> Um, and, and the longer you're around, the more you've had. So it's easier to take when you've, when you've been, you know, the paper's rejected and a, an experiment doesn't work and you're disappointed. And if you're really hoping for it, you might get temporarily upset or angry, but 
there's no place for blame in this business. There really isn't. You know, we're, 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 we're doing the best we can. So if something went wrong in, in an experiment of yours, we would both be disappointed. You would probably be much more disappointed in yourself than I would be in you. A lot of trainees are very afraid of messing up. And I think it just takes time for people to realize that those are going to happen regardless. And so just do your best and learn something from every mistake and move forward. Yeah. I mean, it's somewhat of a platitude to say you learn from your mistakes. I guess, you know, one of the things that I like to do in the lab is that there are, there are relatively short term experiments that may only take uh, a few days or a few weeks and kind of those type of work, kind of like that breeding a mouse that has hyaluronidase and skin, seeing what the gut looks like. You know, th those, those experiments at that point are not a, like, you're not committing everything you have to the outcome of it, either in terms of time or other resources. So when they don't work, you know, you, yeah, you know, you, you've learned a little bit um, and you can learn from that mistake, but you're not left out in the cold. On the other hand, when you start getting the translational studies, you know, big, big trials that, you know, might take three years to accomplish. And so when you've got that much of a, of a time sink on it, you have to execute that with greater precision <laughs> and the best foresight. You know, they still fail all the time, right? That's not uncommon, but more prepared to take a failure from a short-term experiment than one that was in a three or four year investment. And therefore, you know, more quickly we'll go into those short-term experiments. That's some, some good advice. Now I wanna know what's some bad advice that you hear given often in science, something that maybe people should ignore. Well, you're gonna ignore this, <laughs> but it's very common not to wanna to discuss unpublished results. And people say all the time, you get scooped, you're careful not to talk about your work. And that is bad for the field. It's bad for you because it doesn't allow you sort of pre-evaluation of your, of the quality of your work. But, you know, of course I have to recognize there's some circumstances that it might give what is perceived as a competitor uh, an advantage to allow to, to publish in a, in a, on a subject first. So I think I'm in a small minority to say that it's bad advice not to talk about unpublished work, but that's my opinion. And, and my, my postdoc mentor, Mert Bernfield, he, he felt very strongly that when someone published something that you're working on, it was help to you because it was a stepping stone that you could work on. And he used to always say, you know, no one's ever scooped me. And it's not because he, you know, didn't work on like transfer RNAs, got the Nobel Prize and discovered a bunch of proteoglycans and all these kinds of things. It's, it's because he, he realized that that, that, uh, that group of different labs working hard to be first out, um, even if you're second out, you can use the first out people's stuff to make something even better and perhaps even more important. That's a good mindset to have. It's tough to have that mindset, but it's I get it's it. one to cultivate. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, you know, you can take it to extreme. You don't want to be blabbing about something you're not sure about yet and make a bad, you know, reputation for yourself of saying falsities. Yeah. Try try to be communicative, let's put it that way.
Okay, I want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to ask one final question. Do you believe that luck or hard work has contributed more to your success? Luck. (laughs) Well, another one I will say is it's, you know, smarter to be lucky than lucky to be smart. I'm sure you've heard that saying before. I do believe it. Hard work gives you lots of chances. Uh, It's very few people that win the first time they put down a bet, uh, but that win is still based on luck. So hard work gives you lots of chances, but, you know, strategy and and thinking about problems and being creative and open-minded, that lets you, that's not really necessarily work, but it gives you an opportunity to place that bet that may or may not work. And ultimately it's the luck that you guessed right in this case, that fibroblasts are mutagenic, that fat can be host defense, that the skin can make antimicrobial peptides that fight infection. Those, those turn out to be true. Everyone accepts it as, as, as dogma now at different levels of development. But um, at some time, it was kind of a hypothesis that needed to be tested. And lucky the hypothesis was right. All right. Well, are there any closing comments anything you want to say to the audience to be in 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 science and academics has been a tremendous pleasure of mine the mentors that had a bigger impression on me all taught me i think to to love doing this and when you're in the darkest moments of things failing in, in laboratories or being abused by thesis committees Remember that the, the, the end result, whether it be in industry or in academia uh, or as, as a teacher, it, it's, it's a great pleasure to do this. Um, and I wouldn't swap it for anything in the world. I think I'm right there with you. All right, Rich, thanks for joining me. 